This is section twenty four of Happy Homes and the Hearts That Make Them by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty four Companionship in Marriage Kindness in women, not their beauteous looks, shall win my love. Shakespeare the character of men as of women is powerfully influenced by their companionship in all the stages of life we have already spoken of the influence of the mother in forming the character of her children she makes the moral atmosphere in which they live and by which their minds and souls are nourished as their bodies are by the physical atmosphere they breathe and while woman is the natural cherisher of infancy and the instructor of childhood she is also the guide and counsellor of youth, and the confidant and companion of manhood, in her various relations of mother, sister, lover, and wife. In short, the influence of woman more or less affects, for good or for evil, the entire destinies of man. The respective social functions and duties of men and women are clearly defined by nature. God created man and woman each to do their proper work, each to fill their proper sphere. Neither can occupy the position nor perform the functions of the other. Their several vocations are perfectly distinct. Though companions and equals, yet, as regards the measure of their powers, they are unequal. Man is stronger, more muscular, and of rougher fibre. Woman is more delicate, sensitive, and nervous. The one excels in power of brain, the other in qualities of heart. And though the head may rule, it is the heart that influences. Both are alike adapted for the respective functions they have to perform in life, and to attempt to impose woman's work upon man would be quite as absurd as to attempt to impose man's work upon woman. Although man's qualities belong more to the head, and woman's more to the heart, yet it is not less necessary that man's heart should be cultivated as well as his head, and woman's head cultivated as well as her heart. A heartless man is as much out of keeping in civilized society as a stupid and unintelligent woman. The cultivation of all parts of the moral and intellectual nature is requisite to form the man or woman of healthy and well-balanced character without sympathy or consideration for others man were a poor stunted sordid selfish being and without cultivated intelligence the most beautiful woman were little better than a well-dressed doll it is too much the practice to cultivate the weakness of woman rather than her strength and to render her attractive rather than self-reliant her sensibilities are developed at the expense of her health of body as well as mind. She lives, moves, and has her being in the sympathy of others. She dresses that she may attract, and is burdened with accomplishments that she may be chosen. Weak, trembling, and dependent, she incurs the risk of becoming a living embodiment of the Italian proverb, so good that she is good for nothing. On the other hand, the education of young men, too, often errs on the side of selfishness. While the boy is encouraged to trust mainly to his own efforts in pushing his way in the world, the girl is encouraged to rely almost entirely upon others. He is educated with too exclusive reference to himself, and she is educated with exclusive reference to him. He is taught to be self-reliant and self-dependent, while she is taught to be distrustful of herself, dependent and self-sacrificing in all things. Thus the intellect of the one is cultivated at the expense of the affections, and the affections of the other at the expense of the intellect. It is unquestionable that the highest qualities of woman are displayed in her relationship to others through the medium of her affections. She is the nurse whom nature has given to all humankind. She takes charge of the helpless, and nourishes and cherishes those we love. She is the presiding genius of the fireside, where she creates an atmosphere of serenity and contentment suitable for the nurture and growth of character in its best forms. 
she is by her very constitution compassionate gentle patient and self-denying loving hopeful trustful her eye sheds brightness everywhere it shines upon coldness and warms it upon suffering and relieves it upon sorrow and cheers it woman has been styled the angel of the unfortunate she is ready to help the weak to raise the fallen to comfort the suffering it was characteristic of woman that she should have been the first to build and endow a hospital it has been said that wherever a human being is suffering his sighs call a woman to his side when mungo park lonely friendless and famished after being driven forth from an african village by the men was preparing to spend the night under a tree exposed to the rain and the wild beasts which there abounded a poor negro woman returning from the labors of the field took compassion upon him conducted him into her hut and there gave him food and succor and shelter the best productions of the poet goethe as perhaps of most poets were inspired by woman's sympathy of fraulein von klettenberg Luz said on him her influence was avowedly very great not only while at frankfurt but subsequently it was not so much the effect of religious discussion as the experience it gave him of a deeply religious nature she was neither bigot nor prude her faith was an inner light which shed mild radiance around her probably no poet owed more to the benign influence of woman than goethe but he was a man who traded in the loves of women women whom he had attached to him by his powers of fascination when he had no woman in his heart says his latest biographer he was like a dissecting surgeon without a subject he said of balzac that each of his best novels seemed dug out of a suffering woman's heart balzac might have returned the compliment in reference to his early fondness for natural history goethe says i remember that when a child i pulled flowers to pieces to see how the petals were inserted into the calyx or even plucked birds to observe how the feathers were inserted in their wings bettina remarked to lord houghton that he treated women in much the same fashion all his loves high and low were subjected to this kind of vivisection his powers of fascination were extraordinary and if for the purposes of art he wanted a display of strong emotion he deepened the passion without scruple or compunction but while the most characteristic qualities of woman are displayed through her sympathies and affections it is also necessary for her own happiness as a self-dependent being to develop and strengthen her character by due self-culture self-reliance and self-control it is not desirable even were it possible to close the beautiful avenues of the heart self-reliance of the best kind does not involve any limitation in the range of human sympathy but the happiness of woman as of man depends in a great measure upon her individual completeness of character and that self-dependence which springs from the due cultivation of the intellectual powers conjoined with a proper discipline of the heart and conscience will enable her to be more useful in life as well as happy to dispense blessings intelligently as well as to enjoy them and most of all those which spring from mutual dependence and social sympathy to maintain a high standard of purity in society the culture of both sexes must be in harmony and keep equal pace a pure womanhood must be accompanied by a pure manhood the same moral law applies alike to both it would be loosening the foundations of virtue to countenance the notion that because of a difference in sex man were at liberty to set morality at defiance and to do that with impunity which if done by a woman would stain her character for life to maintain a pure and virtuous condition of society therefore man as well as woman must be pure and virtuous both alike shunning all acts infringing on the heart character and conscience shunning them as poison which once imbibed can never be entirely thrown out again 
but mentally embitters to a greater or less extent the happiness of after life although nature spurns all formal rules and directions in affairs of love it might at all events be possible to implant in young minds such views of character as should enable them to discriminate between the true and the false and to accustom them to hold in esteem those qualities of moral purity and integrity without which life is but a scene of folly and misery it may not be possible to teach young people to love wisely but they may at least be guarded by parental advice against the frivolous and despicable passions which so often usurp its name love it has been said in the common acceptation of the term is folly but love in its purity its loftiness its unselfishness is not only a consequence but a proof of our moral excellence the sensibility to moral beauty the forgetfulness of self in the admiration engendered by it all prove its claim to a high moral influence it is the triumph of the unselfish over the selfish part of our nature it is by means of this divine passion that the world is kept ever fresh and young it is the perpetual melody of humanity it sheds an effulgence upon youth and throws a halo round age it glorifies the present by the light it casts backward and it lightens the future by the beams it casts forward the love which is the outcome of esteem and admiration has an elevation and purifying effect on the character it tends to emancipate one from the slavery of self it is altogether unsordid itself is its only price it inspires gentleness sympathy mutual faith and confidence true love also in a measure elevates the intellect all love renders wise in a degree says the poet browning and the most gifted minds have been the sincerest lovers great souls make all affections great they elevate and consecrate all true delights the sentiment even brings to light qualities before lying dormant and unsuspected it elevates the aspirations expands the soul and stimulates the mental powers one of the finest compliments ever paid to a woman was that of steele when he said of lady elizabeth hastings that to have loved her was a liberal education viewed in this light woman is an educator in the highest sense because above all other educators she educates humanly and lovingly it has been said that no man and no woman can be regarded as complete in their experience of life until they have been subdued into a union with the world through their affections as woman is not woman until she has known love neither is man man both are requisite to each other's completeness plato entertained the idea that lovers each sought a likeness in the other and that love was only the divorced half of the original human being entering into union with its counterpart but philosophy would here seem to be at fault for affection quite as often springs from unlikeness as from likeness in its object the true union must needs be one of mind as well as of heart and based on mutual esteem as well as mutual affection no true and enduring love says fichte can exist without esteem every other draws regret after it and is unworthy of any noble human soul one cannot really love the bad but always something that we esteem and respect as well as admire in short true union must rest on qualities of character which rule in domestic as in public life but there is something far more than mere respect and esteem in the union between man and wife the feeling on which it rests is far deeper and tenderer such indeed as never exists between men or between women in matters of affection says nathaniel hawthorne there is always an impassable gulf between man and man they can never quite grasp each other's hands and therefore man never derives any intimate help any heart sustenance from his brother man 
but from woman his mother his sister or his wife man enters a new world of joy and sympathy and human interest through the porch of love he enters a new world in his home the home of his own making altogether different from the home of his boyhood where each day brings with it a succession of new joys and experiences he enters also it may be a new world of trials and sorrows in which he often gathers his best culture and discipline family life says st beuf may be full of thorns and cares but they are fruitful all others are dry thorns and again if a man's home at a certain period of his life does not contain children it will probably be found filled with follies or with vices a life exclusively occupied in affairs of business insensibly tends to narrow and harden the character it is mainly occupied with self watching for advantages and guarding against sharp practice on the part of others thus the character unconsciously tends to grow suspicious and ungenerous the best corrective of such influences is always the domestic by withdrawing the mind from thoughts that are wholly gainful by taking it out of its daily rut and bringing it back to the sanctuary of home for refreshment and rest a man's real character will always be more visible in his household than anywhere else and his practical wisdom will be better exhibited by the manner in which he bears rule there than even in the larger affairs of business or public life his whole mind may be in his business but if he would be happy his whole heart must be in his home it is there that his genuine qualities most surely display themselves there that he shows his truthfulness his love his sympathy his consideration for others his uprightness his manliness in a word his character if affection be not the governing principle in a household domestic life may be the most intolerable of despotisms without justice also there can be neither love confidence nor respect on which all true domestic rule is founded erasmus speaks of sir thomas moore's home as a school and exercise of the christian religion no wrangling no angry word was heard in it no one was idle every one did his duty with alacrity and not without a temperate cheerfulness sir thomas won all hearts to obedience by his gentleness he was a man clothed in household goodness and he ruled so gently and wisely that his home was pervaded by an atmosphere of love and duty he himself spoke of the hourly interchange of the smaller acts of kindness with the several members of his family as having a claim upon his time as strong as those other public occupations of his life which seemed to others so much more serious and important but the man whose affections are quickened by home life does not confine his sympathies within that comparatively narrow sphere his love enlarges in the family and through the family it expands into the world love says emerson is a fire that kindling its first embers in the narrow nook of a private bosom caught from a wandering spark out of another private heart glows and enlarges until it warms and beams upon multitudes of men and women upon the universal heart of all and so lights up the whole world and nature with its generous flames it is by the regimen of domestic affection that the heart of man is best composed and regulated the home is the woman's kingdom her state her world where she governs by affection by kindness by the power of gentleness there is nothing which so settles the turbulence of a man's nature as his union in life with a high-minded woman there he finds rest contentment and happiness rest of brain and peace of spirit he will also often find in her his best counsellor for her instinctive tact will usually lead him right when his own unaided reason might be apt to go wrong the true wife is a staff 
to lean upon in times of trial and difficulty and she is never wanting in sympathy and solace when distress occurs or fortune frowns in the time of youth she is a comfort and an ornament of man's life and she remains a faithful helpmate in maturer years when life has ceased to be an anticipation and we live in its realities what a happy man must edmund burke have been when he could say of his home every care vanishes the moment i enter under my own roof and luther a man full of human affection speaking of his wife said i would not exchange my poverty with her for all the riches of croesus without her of marriage he observed the utmost blessing that god can confer on a man is the possession of a good and pious wife with whom he may live in peace and tranquillity to whom he may confide his whole possessions even his life and welfare and again he said to rise betimes and to marry young are what no man ever repents of doing a woman's best qualities do not reside in her intellect but in her affections she gives refreshment by her sympathies rather than by her knowledge the brain women says oliver wendell holmes never interest us like the heart women men are often so wearied with themselves that they are rather predisposed to admire qualities and tastes in others different from their own if i were suddenly asked says mr helps to give a proof of the goodness of god to us i think i should say that it is the most manifest in the exquisite difference he has made between the souls of men and women so as to create the possibility of the most comforting and charming companionship that the mind of man can imagine it is this characteristic sympathy of woman which gives to home its charm and to home and childhood reminiscences a sacredness which causes such songs as home sweet home and the old oaken bucket to be the favorites of all classes when samuel woodworth wrote the old oaken bucket he was living with his family in new york city one hot day he came into the house and pouring out a glass of water drained it eagerly as he set it down he exclaimed that is very refreshing but how much more refreshing would it be to take a good long draught from the old oaken bucket i left hanging in my father's well at home selim said his wife wouldn't that be a pretty subject for a poem at this suggestion woodworth seized his pen and as the home of his childhood rose vividly to his fancy he wrote the now familiar words there are few men who have written so wisely on the subject of marriage as sir henry taylor what he says about the influence of a happy union in its relation to successful statesmanship applies to all conditions of life the true wife he says should possess such qualities as will tend to make home as much as may be a place of repose to this end she should have sense enough or worth enough to exempt her husband as much as possible from the troubles of family management and more especially from all possibility of debt she should be pleasing to his eyes and to his taste the taste goes deep into the nature of all men love is hardly apart from it and in a life of care and excitement that home which is not the seat of love cannot be a place of repose rest for the brain and peace for the spirit being only to be had through the softening of the affections the true wife takes a sympathy in her husband's pursuits she cheers him encourages him and helps him she enjoys his successes and his pleasures and makes as little as possible over his vexations in his seventy-second year faraday after a long and happy marriage wrote to his wife i long to see you dearest and to talk over things together and call to mind all the kindnesses i have received my head is full and my heart also but my recollection rapidly fails even as regards the friends that are in the room with me you will have to resume your old function of being a pillow to my mind and a rest a happy-making wife some persons are disappointed in marriage because they expect too much from it but many more 
because they do not bring into the co-partnership their fair share of cheerfulness kindness forbearance and common sense their imagination has perhaps pictured a condition never experienced on this side of heaven and when real life comes with its troubles and cares there is a sudden waking up as from a dream or they look for something approaching perfection in their chosen companion and discover by experience that the fairest of characters have their weaknesses the golden rule of married life is bear and forbear marriage like government is a series of compromises one must give and take refrain and restrain endure and be patient one may not be blind to another's failings but they may at least be born with good-natured forbearance of all qualities good temper is the one that wears and works the best in married life conjoined with self-control it gives patience the patience to bear and forbear to listen without retort to refrain until the angry flash has passed how true it is in marriage that the soft answer turneth away wrath it has been said that girls are very good at making nets but that it would be better still if they would learn to make cages men are often as easily caught as birds but as difficult to keep if the wife cannot make her home bright and happy so that it shall be the cleanest sweetest cheerfulest place that her husband can find refuge in a retreat from the toils and troubles of the outer world then god help the poor man for he is virtually homeless no wise person will marry for beauty mainly it may exercise a powerful attraction in the first place but it is found to be of comparatively little consequence afterwards not that beauty of person is to be underestimated for other things being equal handsomeness of form and beauty of features are the outward manifestations of health but to marry a handsome figure without character fine features unbeautified by sentiment or good nature is the most deplorable of mistakes as even the finest landscape seen daily becomes monotonous so does the most beautiful face unless a beautiful nature shines through it the beauty of to-day becomes commonplace to-morrow whereas goodness displayed through the most ordinary features is perennially lovely moreover this kind of beauty improves with age and time ripens rather than destroys it after the first year married people rarely think of each other's features and whether they be classically beautiful or otherwise but they never fail to be cognizant of each other's temper when i see a man says addison with a sour rivalled face i cannot forbear pitying his wife and when i meet with an open ingenuous countenance i think of the happiness of his friends his family and his relations a man's moral character is necessarily powerfully influenced by his wife a lower nature will drag him down as a higher will lift him up the former will deaden his sympathies dissipate his energies and distort his life while the latter by satisfying his affections will strengthen his moral nature and by giving him repose tend to energize his intellect not only so but a woman of high principles will insensibly elevate the aims and purposes of her husband as one of low principles will unconsciously degrade them de tocqueville was profoundly impressed by this truth he entertained the opinion that man could have no such mainstay in life as the companionship of a wife of good temper and high principle he says that in the course of his life he had seen even weak men display real public virtue because they had by their side a woman of noble character who sustained them in their career and exercised a fortifying influence on their views of public duty while on the contrary he had still oftener seen men of great and generous instincts transformed into vulgar self-seekers by contact with women of narrow natures devoted to an imbecile love of pleasure and from whose minds the grand motive of duty was altogether absent 
de tocqueville himself had the good fortune to be blessed with an admirable wife and in his letters to his intimate friends he spoke most gratefully of the comfort and support he derived from her sustaining courage her equanimity of temper and her nobility of character the more indeed that de tocqueville saw of the world and of practical life the more convinced he became of the necessity of healthy domestic conditions for a man's growth in virtue and goodness especially did he regard marriage as of inestimable importance in regard to man and woman's true happiness and he was accustomed to speak of his own as the wisest action of his life writing to his bosom friend de kergolay he said of all the blessings which god has given me the greatest of all in my eyes is to have lighted on marie you cannot imagine what she is in great trials usually so gentle she then becomes strong and energetic she watches me without my knowing it she softens calms and strengthens me in difficulties which disturb me but leave her serene in another letter he says i cannot describe to you the happiness yielded in the long run by the habitual society of a woman in whose soul all that is good in your own is reflected naturally and even improved when i say or do a thing which seems to me to be perfectly right i read in marie's countenance an expression of proud satisfaction which elevates me and so when my conscience reproaches me her face instantly clouds over although i have great power over her mind i see with pleasure that she awes me and so long as i love her as i do now i am sure that i shall never allow myself to be drawn into anything that is wrong m guizot was in like manner sustained and encouraged amidst his many vicissitudes and disappointments by his noble wife if he was treated with harshness by his political enemies his consolation was in the tender affection which filled his home with sunshine though his public life was bracing and stimulating he felt nevertheless that it was cold and calculating and neither filled the soul nor elevated the character man longs for a happiness he says in his memoirs more complete and more tender than that which all the labors and triumphs of active exertion and public importance can bestow what i know to-day at the end of my race i have felt when it began and during its continuance even in the midst of great undertakings domestic affections form the basis of life and the most brilliant career has only superficial and incomplete enjoyments if a stranger to the happy ties of family and friendship we have spoken of the influence of a wife upon a man's character there are few men strong enough to resist the influence of a lower character in a wife if she do not sustain and elevate what is highest in his nature she will speedily reduce him to her own level thus a wife may be the making or the unmaking of the best of men sir samuel romilly left behind him in his autobiography a touching picture of his wife to whom he attributed no small measure of the success and happiness that accompanied him through life for the last fifteen years he said my happiness has been the constant study of the most excellent of wives a woman in whom a strong understanding the noblest and most elevated sentiments and the most courageous virtue are united to the warmest affection and to the utmost delicacy of mind and heart and all these intellectual perfections are graced by the most splendid beauty that human eyes ever beheld romilly's affection and admiration for this noble woman endured to the end and when she died the shock proved greater than his sensitive nature could bear sleep left his eyelids his mind became unhinged and three days after her death the sad event occurred which brought his own valued life to a close sir francis burdett to whom romilly had been often politically opposed fell into such a state of profound melancholy on the death of his wife that he persistently refused nourishment of any kind and died before the removal of her remains from the house and husband and wife were laid side by side in the same grave 
not only have women been the best of companions friends and counsellors but they have in many cases been the most effective helpers of their husbands in special lines of work galvani was especially happy in his wife it is said to have been through her quick observation of the circumstance of the leg of a frog placed near an electrical machine becoming convulsed when touched by a knife that her husband was first led to investigate the science which has since become identified with his name lavoisier's wife also was a woman of real scientific ability who not only shared in her husband's pursuits but even undertook the task of engraving the plates that accompanied his elements the late dr buckland had another true helper in his wife who assisted him with her pen prepared and mended his fossils and furnished many of the drawings and illustrations of his published works notwithstanding her devotion to her husband's pursuits says her son frank buckland in the preface to one of his father's works she did not neglect the education of her children but accompanied her mornings in superintending their instruction in sound and useful knowledge the sterling value of her labors they now in after-life fully appreciate and feel most thankful that they were blessed with so good a mother a still more remarkable instance of helpfulness in a wife is presented in the case of hubert the geneva naturalist hubert was blind from his seventeenth year and yet he found means to study and master a branch of natural history demanding the closest observation and the keenest eyesight it was through the eyes of his wife that his mind worked as if they had been his own she encouraged her husband's studies as a means of alleviating his privation which at length he came to forget and his life was as prolonged and happy as is usual with naturalists he even went so far as to declare that he should be miserable were he to regain his eyesight i should not know he said to what extent a person in my situation could be loved besides to me my wife is always young fresh and pretty which is no light matter hubert's great work on bees is still regarded as a masterpiece embodying a vast amount of original observation on their habits and natural history indeed while reading his descriptions one would suppose that they were the work of a singularly keen-sighted man rather than of one who had been entirely blind for twenty-five years at the time at which he wrote them not less touching was the devotion of lady hamilton to the service of her husband the late sir william hamilton after he had been stricken by paralysis through overwork at the age of fifty-six she became hands eyes mind and everything to him she identified herself with his work read and consulted books for him copied out and corrected his lectures and relieved him of all business which she felt herself competent to undertake indeed her conduct as a wife was nothing short of heroic and it is probable that but for her devoted and more than wifely help and her rare practical ability the greatest of her husband's works would never have seen the light he was by nature unmethodical and disorderly and she supplied him with method and order his temperament was studious but indolent while she was active and energetic she abounded in the qualities which he most lacked he had the genius to which her vigorous nature gave the force and impulse when sir william hamilton was elected to his professorship after a severe and even bitter contest his opponents professing to regard him as a visionary predicted that he could never teach a class of students and that his appointment would prove a total failure he determined with the help of his wife to justify the choice of his supporters and to prove that his enemies were false prophets having no stock of lectures on hand each lecture of the first course was written out day by day as it was to be delivered on the following morning the wife sat up with him night after night to write out a fair copy of the lectures from the rough sheets which he drafted in the adjoining room on some occasions says his biographer the subject of the lecture would prove less easily managed than on others and then sir william would be found writing as late as nine o'clock in the morning 
while his faithful but wearied amanuensis had fallen asleep on a sofa sometimes the finishing touches to the lecture were left to be given just before the class hour thus helped sir william completed his course his reputation as a lecturer was established and he eventually became recognized throughout europe as one of the leading intellects of his time the woman who soothes anxiety by her presence who charms and allays irritability by her sweetness of temper is a consoler as well as a true helper niebuhr always spoke of his wife as a fellow-worker with him in this sense without the peace and consolation which he found in her society his nature would have fretted in comparative uselessness her sweetness of temper and her love said he raise me above the earth and in a manner separate me from this life but she was a helper in another and more direct way niebuhr was accustomed to discuss with his wife every historical discovery every political event every novelty in literature and it was mainly for her pleasure and approbation in the first instance that he labored while preparing himself for the instruction of the world at large the wife of john stuart mill was another worthy helper of her husband though in a more abstruse department of study as we learn from his touching dedication of the treatise on liberty to the beloved and deplored memory of her who was the inspirer and in part the author of all that is best in my writings the friend and wife whose exalted sense of truth and right was my strongest incitement and whose approbation was my chief reward i dedicate this volume not less touching is the testimony borne by another great living writer to the character of his wife in the inscription upon the tombstone of mrs carlyle where are inscribed these words in her bright existence she had more sorrows than are common but also a soft amiability a capacity of discernment and a noble loyalty of heart which are rare for forty years she was the true and loving helpmate of her husband and by act and word unweariedly forwarded him as none else could in all of worth that he did or attempted besides being a helper woman is emphatically a consoler her sympathy is unfailing she soothes cheers and comforts never was this more true than in the case of the wife of tom hood whose tender devotions to him during a life that was a prolonged illness is one of the most affecting things in biography a woman of excellent good sense she appreciated her husband's genius and by encouragement and sympathy cheered and heartened him to renewed efforts in many a weary struggle for life she created about him an atmosphere of hope and cheerfulness and nowhere did the sunshine of her love seem so bright as when lighting up the couch of her invalid husband nor was he unconscious of her worth in one of his letters to her when absent from his side hood said i never was anything dearest till i knew you and i have been a better happier and more prosperous man ever since lay by that truth in lavender sweetest and remind me of it when i fail i am writing warmly and fondly but not without good cause first your own affectionate letter lately received next the remembrance of our dear children pledges what darling ones of our old familiar love then a delicious impulse to pour out the overflowings of my heart into yours and last not least the knowledge that your dear eyes will read what my hand is now writing perhaps there is an afterthought that whatever may befall me the wife of my bosom will have the acknowledgment of her tenderness worth excellence all that is wifely or womanly from my pen many other similar true-hearted wives rise up in the memory to recite whose praises would more than fill up our remaining space such as flaxman's wife anne denham who cheered and encouraged her husband through life in the prosecution of his art accompanying him to rome sharing in his labors and anxieties and finally in his triumphs and to whom flaxman 
in the fortieth year of their married life dedicated his beautiful designs illustrative of faith hope and charity in token of his deep and undimmed affection such as catherine butcher's dark-eyed kate the wife of william blake who believed her husband to be the first genius on earth worked off the impression of his plates and colored them beautifully with her own hand bore with him in all his erratic ways sympathized with him in his sorrows and joys for forty-five years and comforted him until his dying hour his last sketch made in his seventy-first year being a likeness of himself before making which seeing his wife crying by his side he said stay kate just keep as you are i will draw your portrait for you have ever been an angel to me trial and sufferings are the test of married life they bring out the real character and often tend to produce the closest union they may even be the spring of the purest happiness uninterrupted joy like uninterrupted success is not good for either man or woman when heine's wife died he began to reflect upon the loss he had sustained they had both known poverty and struggled through it hand in hand and it was his greatest sorrow that she was taken from him at the moment when fortune was beginning to smile upon him but too late for her to share in his prosperity alas said he among my griefs must i reckon even her love the strongest truest that ever inspired the heart of woman which made me the happiest of mortals and yet was to me a fountain of a thousand distresses inquietudes and cares to entire cheerfulness perhaps she never attained but for what unspeakable sweetness what exalted enrapturing joys is not love indebted to sorrow amidst growing anxieties with the torture of anguish in my heart i have been made even by the loss which caused me this anguish and these anxieties inexpressibly happy when tears flowed over our cheeks did not a nameless seldom felt delight stream through my breast oppressed equally by joy and sorrow there is a degree of sentiment in german love which seems strange to english readers the german betrothal is a ceremony of almost equal importance to the marriage itself and in that state the sentiments are allowed free play while english lovers are restrained shy and as if ashamed of their feelings take for instance the case of herder whom his future wife first saw in the pulpit i heard she says the voice of an angel and soul's words such as i had never heard before in the afternoon i saw him and stammered out my thanks to him from this time forth our souls were one they were betrothed long before their means would permit them to marry but at length they were united we were married says caroline the wife by the rose light of a beautiful evening we were one heart one soul herder was equally ecstatic in his language i have a wife he wrote that is the tree the consolation and the happiness of my life even in flying transient thoughts which often surprise us we are one take again the case of fichte in whose history his courtship and marriage form a beautiful episode he was a poor german student living with a family at zurich in the capacity of tutor when he first made the acquaintance of johanna maria Rahn. her position in life was higher than that of fichte nevertheless she regarded him with sincere admiration when fichte was about to leave zurich his troth plighted to her she knowing him to be very poor offered him a gift of money before setting out he was inexpressibly hurt by the offer and at first even doubted whether she could really love him but on second thought he wrote to her expressing his deep thanks but at the same time the impossibility of him accepting such a gift from her he succeeded in reaching his destination though entirely destitute of means after a long and hard struggle with the world extending over many years fichte was at length earning money enough to enable him to marry in one of his charming letters to his betrothed he said and so dearest 
i solemnly devote myself to thee and thank thee that thou hast thought me not unworthy to be thy companion on the journey of life there is no land of happiness here below i know it now but a land of toil where every joy but strengthens us for greater labor hand in hand we shall traverse it and encourage and strengthen each other until our spirits oh may it be together shall rise to the eternal fountain of all peace what a contrast does the courtship and married life of the blunt and practical william cobbett present to the aesthetical and sentimental love of these highly refined germans when he first set eyes upon the girl that was afterwards to become his wife she was only thirteen years old and he was twenty-one a sergeant-major in a foot regiment stationed at st john's in new brunswick he was passing the door of her father's house one day in winter and saw the girl out in the snow scrubbing a washing-tub he said at once to himself that's the girl for me he made her acquaintance and resolved that she should be his wife so soon as he could get discharged from the army on the eve of the girl's return to woolwich with her father who was a sergeant-major in the artillery cobbett sent her a hundred and fifty guineas which he had saved in order that she might be able to live without hard work until his return to england the girl departed taking with her the money and five years later cobbett obtained his discharge on reaching london he made haste to call upon the sergeant-major's daughter i found he says my little girl a servant of all work and hard work it was at five pounds a year in the house of a captain brissac and without hardly saying a word about the matter she put into my hands the whole of my hundred and fifty guineas unbroken admiration of her conduct was now added to love of her person and cobbett shortly after married the girl who proved an excellent wife he was indeed never tired of speaking her praises and it was his pride to attribute to her all the comfort and much of the success of his after-life end of chapter twenty four companionship in marriage read by john greenman